This is Dark Blue. My name is Jeff Rickley. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the challenges that people face when they choose a life in the arts. On each episode, we'll talk to a different artist about a range of topics, from addiction to depression, to what it feels like to lose a collaborator to suicide. And we'll try to find the tools that they've used to lead healthy lives in a field that has few guidelines. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Kitty, an American musician who became an overnight sensation when her song OK Cupid became a viral hit. Kitty has toured and collaborated with rappers like Danny Brown, Riff Raff, and Leaf. We discuss the perils of accidental success, unhealthy relationships, body dysmorphia, and eating disorders. I wanted to go back to the beginning and ask her what that was like. I imagine that was kind of like um, a shock to have such success so early on. And was it at all like, did it throw you for a loop at all? Uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, because I didn't mean to get popular. I didn't. I never in my life was like, I want to make music. I just started doing it because it was fun. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I was just messing around. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like getting flown to London by, like I put out a song and then I'm getting flown to London by XL to like meet. Wow. Like Jamie XX and stuff. And I'm just like, wait, oh, I had no what? idea it was like that. That's really crazy. It was crazy at first. I was like, cause, cause I don't know. It was in 2012, it was like the peak of people getting popular just from like making music at home and putting it online, you know, mm-hmm. like in sure. just, yeah. And so, and it was also like a big time for brands and stuff to like started getting into advertising on music blogs and like music journalism was kind of crazy. And it was just like a weird, crazy time. And I just, was in the right time at the right place and ended up with way more just all of a sudden, like overnight, just like a completely different life. And how did it change your life? Like what was your life right before that and then sort of right after that? Because it seems like it changed a lot, like even maybe what you thought you were going to do with your life and stuff like that. Oh, like in time. Well, so I was always, I was really into school and I was in college when I first you know, at the time I was in college and I had worked really hard the entire time I was in school. So at that point I was like, I was 19, but I was only a semester away from being done with my bachelor's degree. And <laughs> I was, I worked at the mall and I, I knew was, that you went like, to college young too, right? Like a little bit. Yeah. Young. I yeah, started okay. really, really young. Cause I started when I was in high school through like a program mm-hmm. and then I just like, once I graduated high school, I had my associate's degree and I was like, well, I might as well just finish this as fast as I can. So I would go to school in the summer and everything. So like my whole life was like school and, uh, my job. And I didn't even, I didn't even really like socialize. Like I didn't really go to a lot of shows at that point. Like, I don't know. I was just really focusing on graduating college. Mm -hmm. 
And then after the music stuff happened, it was, like, just so out of the blue. And my parents, like, didn't even know that I had been making music, like, in my closet. So I was just like, hey, guys, like, I'm on the cover of the New York Times today. I don't know. (laughs) And so, yeah, it was, like, really shocking. And my parents have always been really supportive of, like, you know, do like live your dreams. Like you can do anything you want, but also very like pushy until you should definitely do something big. Cause like you have potential. Mm-hmm. And so when I had all of these opportunities to do music stuff, I was like, I guys, like, I know this is nuts, but I think that if I don't do it and I just ignore this and let it die down, mm-hmm. uh, I'm giving up like a really cool life. <laughs> so I just, did it. I just like went to New York and did it and no one was mad. That's great. I, I was really lucky. I had the same sort of thing for my parents. When Thursday started to take off, they were like, just, yeah, I, I was a, a semester away from finishing my degree too. And they were like, they both <laughs> taught school and they thought, you know what, just go for it. Like this is a chance that many people don't get. So it'd be crazy to pass it up, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> So I feel like we're both really lucky in that respect. So it sounds like, yeah, I think most people hearing this will say like, wow, that sounds like a dream come true. You know, was there at all a dark side to that? Like, did was it, you know, did you feel like, what am I doing here? Did you ever, you know, what was kind of the, the, the harder part of that? Because people always hear the dream come true aspect, you know? Well, at first it was, it, it didn't even really feel like a dream come true at the beginning. I was like, oh my God this is, like, so much. I don't think that this is what I'm, like, cut out for at all. Uh-huh. But and I is kind that because it was overwhelming? Like first... or... Yeah, and it also was just so different from my life because I didn't... Like, I, I grew up, like, performing and plays and, like, singing and dance and stuff, and I loved doing that. But, like, when I... Like, the older I got, I mean, I, I was kind of depressed and I had some problems when I was a teenager, like in my late teens. So Mm -hmm. at that point I had just sort of fallen off of like ever performing or being in front of people. And I was really self-conscious and I had an eating disorder and like a lot of body image issues. So it was just like really weird because all of a sudden I never, my, my daily life was just like, I see the people at school and the people at my job and like, I work at the mall and like, that's it. And then suddenly it was like, Oh, there's a million people judging you. And they're cool. And like these, you know, meeting people (laughs) in bands that I thought were cool and stuff like that was just so weird and scary. But at first I was like, you know, I was like that. And then I realized like, no, if I'm going to do this, like I can't just be shy and like, whatever, I can't fuck it up. So yeah, just get over it and enjoy it. So that's an interesting thing that you say. Yeah. I think a lot of people put in that situation the depression and the anxiety and the things that you would think, oh, I could never do, you know, what you guys are doing, be so social. There is a time period when it, for me at least, stuff stuff like depression, anxiety, it kind of went away when I was forced into the situation. Like I didn't know what else to do. And it seemed like, oh, the attention and kind of like the camaraderie that I had from meeting people, it sort of medicated it a little bit for me. I don't know what effect it had on you though. Did it help you or did it magnify your anxiety? Like what was sort of, did you sort of forget about it for a second or? Well, I, 
I think about it and I haven't even really been able to like put it into the right context until recently, but mm-hmm. a lot of how I felt when I first got popular, I started dating a guy who was already established in music and like a lot older than me. Mm-hmm. And I I did whatever he said. And so a lot of the things I feel like I might have my whole career and stuff would have gone a lot differently if I hadn't been in that relationship. Mm. But I think that a lot of the anxiety and depression and stuff that came from, I think it would have been alleviated a little bit if I had been in a different circle of people. Because Mm. I, I know like, I know a lot of other people who accidentally just like started really young and just fell into music or whatever. And they're like, yeah, but I mean, we have each other and our friends and stuff. And I'm like, damn, I did not really have that when I first started. So I had, I questioned myself a lot and was like, do I really belong here? I should probably move home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Do you feel like then in some ways you sort of transferred it into more of like a codependence in a relationship? You let the anxiety just be like an attachment to somebody else and like, I'll just listen to them or. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I do that a lot myself. (laughs) So I get it. Pisces power, right? I had just found out that Kitty and I are both Pisces, the most emotional and undeniably the best sign of the Zodiac. What was it like those first few years? Like, how did things change for you? Did you start to feel like, I am an artist, I can do this? You know what I mean? Like, what was that like? Because if you weren't planning on it, then you didn't have a master plan, right? Yeah, no. (laughs) I Well, at first... I, when I was still thinking, like, this is just an accident, what the fuck, I got a manager who Mm -hmm. was also managing Danny Brown, so, like, he was a a good manager. Mm -hmm. I got, you know, publishing deal right away, and I got all these people that were working for me or with me and whatever, and and so I was getting all these opportunities, and, like, the times that I felt like, I'm literally an imposter, like, this is insane— then I still had all those people telling me what to do, and I'd be like, well, this is just my job, so even when I feel stupid, like, I'm going to do it. Like, it's a cool job to have, mm-hmm. and I had all these people, but, like, I also, I mean, I was an idiot. I wasn't thinking about my next move or, like, the master plan or, like, what was smart in terms of, like, branding. I just, I didn't know what I was doing at all, so when I would just just make dumb decisions, like... I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to take that. I don't want to take that deal. I don't want to do that. Like, I passed up on stuff that probably would have helped me. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, and so the people that were working with me that were like, yeah, we're going to make you into a big star or whatever, just, it always just kind of fell through and it just seemed to fade away. Mm-hmm. But then by the time it was fading away, I was, like, really getting into it. And I was like, wait, I am good at music. Like, I'm an artist. I'm doing this. So eventually I ran out. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of people working for me. And, like, I fired my manager for some reason. I don't know. I was being a brat or something. And I just was like, well, shit. And then I remember putting out, like, an EP on my own. And I was thinking the whole time, like, this is going to be exactly like it was, you know, it'll be all over again, all this attention and like, you know, writing about me and whatever. And then that didn't happen. (laughs) It was 
very weird reality check. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit, I kind of have to, like, rethink all of this. Right. And it did make me really sad because I was like, damn, I'm there's probably so many things I could have done different. But I don't know. I think it's really interesting that you brought up the imposter syndrome, which I think most artists have to some degree. And I could imagine for you that it would be like really intense because, you know, in a sense, people told you what you were and then you had to feel like, well, am I even that thing? You know, um, maybe you were that thing for a song. Maybe you were that thing for, you know, you had a you had like a an idea of something you wanted to do. But, you know, people would be like, oh, she's not the big next big rapper. And you'd be like, wow. I didn't realize anybody ever thought that I might be claiming that I was going to be yeah. some big rapper. Like, what was that like? Did you did you let outside voices tell you you were an imposter, like in your head, seeing reactions? Or was it more, did it come from inside? Well, I think on the, on the inside, I definitely always felt, I was like, this is insane, you know. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything about music. Like, I didn't even know the first thing about, I didn't know what mixing was. Like Mm -hmm. it was crazy. I didn't know shit. And so every time I would, but I always have been like, I want everyone to think that I'm put together and that I know what I'm doing. And I sort of get stubborn about that where I don't, especially when I was a teenager, I was like, bitch, don't tell me what I am. (laughs) And so I didn't really care a lot. I didn't, it was very hard to get myself to care and even to like come up with what it is, like what it was that I wanted people to think of me as. Mm-hmm. So basically, I would just sit on the internet and like wait for someone to say some weird shit, and then I would just like argue with them mm-hmm. and be like, "Fuck you!" I don't, I don't know. The whole point was just to, I guess, empower myself because I was secretly like freaking out, but. Yeah, I don't know. The the hip-hop thing is especially funny because that was a big one where I was like, are you serious? I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to be a rapper. Like, I'm not trying to be, like, the face of white girl hip-hop. Like, I, I never was, and people were getting so fucking mad at me. This all came to a head around the time that Beyonce put out her self-titled record. Kitty was asked by Vice to live blog a review of the album. The review was stream of conscious and playful. Kitty obviously enjoyed the album very much. However, she lacked the historical context and point of reference that was essential for understanding what the album was really about. And as a result, her review seemed shallow or even flippant at times. And because of this, there was quite a backlash. I understood this backlash as Kitty came to understand it later, but I couldn't help but wonder if in fact Vice had set up Kitty to fail. Basically blindsided, like somebody's asking you to do something, maybe even being like, oh, this should be a real spectacle to see what people think of her. Uh, it, it's just a, yes, that was yeah. such a thing. And I never I never spotted it when it was happening. Mm-hmm. Like now I look back and I'm like, those motherfuckers were trying to get me to look stupid. Like <laughs> yeah, right, right, all right. the time, like Kitty, write about the Diana Brown thing. Kitty, write about the Beyonce. And I'm like, why the fuck did I fall for that? Right. But. <laughs> That's what happens when you're 19. We're going to take a break now and have a word from the people who make Dark Blue possible. Dark Blue is part of the Osiris family. Osiris connects people like you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. 
Visit OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss new interviews, events, and podcasts. Despite any missteps, one of the most common things you'll hear about Kitty is how surprisingly thoughtful she is. As the hype around OkCupid died down, Kitty began to find herself as a songwriter. It's been really interesting to watch you find yourself and to watch you play with different kinds of music and, and like learn about producing too and, and stuff that, you know, you said you didn't have any idea about. But um, from the inside, like, what did it feel like when you felt like people had given up, the hype had died down? Did you feel lost? And, and did you ever want to quit? Or was it kind of like, well, now I really love making music. I find that really interesting, too. Um, well, it was, I mean, it was both. Because I did really love, I started really, really loving making music. And there was... I like to learn things like that's just I don't know it's mm-hmm. it's more fun for me to like learn something than do something I already know how to do. So when I was making music, the whole reason I kept doing it was because I was just learning more and more. And every time I would go to a studio, I would learn something new about recording or production or you know whatever. And I would just look up things about songwriting all the time and work on shit like that. And so. When everybody stopped caring, it was, like, around the time when I started being, like, wait. And that was actually when Impatience, that was that was the EP where I had spent, like, so much time being, like, learning new things. And mm-hmm. I was actually really proud of it, which was the mm-hmm. first time for any of my music that I had been actually proud of it and cared about it. Right. And then when nobody else gave a shit about it, I was, like, oh, wait. Maybe I should just, maybe this was a waste of time. Like, what? I just wasted so much fucking time. And then I would just have, like, crises where I was like, wow, now I have to, like, leave my life and go to Florida again, and I should just finish college because I'm never going to do anything important here, and there's no reason for me to live in, like, expensive New York City. Like, what am I going to do? Sure. So I was, like, constantly really sad about that, (laughs) but... I don't even really know how I got through it. How close did you get to just, I'm not doing anything anymore? Like, was it something that entered your head or was it something that you were like, I should just stop? Like, really, like you start, did you start looking into how to go back to school or, you know, how, how deep did the crisis of confidence go with it? Oh, it was, I was ready to quit. Um, there, I, (laughs) there was a very specific time and it was right after I released Impatience or maybe like the week that I did or something. Um, so I had been talking to a record label and I was supposed to get this deal for a hundred thousand dollars and I was going to be, and there was going to be like radio stuff and whatever for songs that I had already released. So I didn't even have to like make new ones. It was like a deal to just try to make my okay cupid and shit popular in like the UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited about that. And I was like, okay, it's been tough. Like. Life has been shitty a little bit, but now it's going to be good. Like, my hard work is about to pay off. And then I remember waking up one morning and I had an email from, like, all the people that had been working on this deal that I had already signed it, and they were, we were just waiting for them to sign it, whatever. And they were like, actually, like, something happened, like, financially with the label. Like, they're going to have to back out of this. It's not you. Like, I don't know. And it was just, like... 
all right, this is a this is a sign, like a sign from above that I need to just go the fuck home. And I I think I did. I went home for a couple months cuz I was just devastated. Mm-hmm. And it was like so whack. I just, the whole thing was just such a mess. And my mom actually really encouraged me to keep going because I didn't really have a lot of people in my life that gave a shit about mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. which was, you know, goes back to the whole immediately falling in with a circle of people who sucked. But I didn't have anybody to really encourage me other than, like, my fans on Twitter and Mm -hmm. my mom. And my mom watched some documentary about Jay-Z, I think. This this was a very important moment for me, where she sent me, like, a two-page text just out of nowhere when I was feeling, like, really shitty, but I don't know how she knew that. She was like, I just watched this documentary about Jay-Z, and it made me think of you. And I was like, oh, God, Mom, <laughs> I just got in trouble about Jay-Z. Like, don't. And it was just a, I guess he said something about, like, how long it took him to, like, be successful or just something very inspirational. And I was like, you know what? Okay. She's like, I believe that you can do this. You can't quit after all this shit you've been through now. And so I was like, all right, fine. That's, I mean, and that's that amazing <laughs> that you had, that you had her. Did you ever in the It didn't, times, you know, end all the feelings, but you know. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, sure. Because there's always <laughs> also like the double, like I have very supportive parents and in low moments, they've been like that too. Like, oh, it's going to turn around and you're so brilliant. And it's like, at some point you're like, well, of course you think so. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You're the only one who seems to think I'm not an idiot. <laughs> um, I've definitely had those feelings. I know, but, um. Did you find, and maybe this is like a moment where things will, uh, you know, take a little bit of a turn in the interview, but did you find, since you mentioned, um, you know, anxiety and body dysmorphia and and, um, some other things like that, like, did you find those things coming back in that time period? Did you find, like, was there any kind of a flare up of it or was that sort of a separate deal? Oh, definitely. I mean, my anxiety was like, because I've always been like kind of an anxious person, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I never really had, you know, it didn't really affect my life too much when I was, when I lived in Florida still. And then over time, like the, just being around the people I was around and like doing what I was doing, it just got worse and worse and worse. And then I was in a terrible relationship and everything got way worse and it turns out I have PTSD from that which I didn't even know for a long time but like that was a big thing where I was just like why do I feel fucking crazy always like I Mm -hmm. I, it really took a couple of years for me to understand like oh my god like I'm a mess and I really had just I had been anxious and like upset and scared and like you know hated myself and just mad about things like constantly underneath every other emotion I was just always all that anxiety was there mm-hmm. and so it would just get worse and worse and worse and so every time I was like putting out music I was scared to do that and then I was scared of the reaction and then I was mad when there was no reaction and then it was just a cycle of bullshit <laughs> Right. And how did you, how did you find out about the PTSD? So that I, so I did a Kickstarter for my Mm -hmm. last album that I put out like a little over a year ago. Miami Garden Club, right? 
Yeah, Miami Garden Club. And um, after I had moved to L.A. in one of my, like, crazy, (laughs) terrible ideas that I just decided to do. I moved to L.A., so I lived in L.A., and I did this Kickstarter for an album. And it was successful, which stressed me out a lot because I really didn't think it was going to happen. But then I had all these obligations to make this album, and everything in my life was just literally falling apart. And... On top of that, I was like, oh, shit, I have to make this album all by myself. And a bunch of that stuff fell apart. And I moved back to... I literally was like, fuck this. Like, I have to go back to Florida. I have to finish this album because I'm obligated to, but I'm never doing this again because I... my Like, I was having panic attacks that I would have, like, seizures. Like, I would black out. Wow. And I was like, this is just fucking nuts. So I finally... I went home to Florida, and I went to therapy, and... I learned about PTSD and I was like, oh, so this explains a lot. What was that feeling when, when the doctor or the therapist or whoever told you uh, that you were suffering from PTSD? Was it a relief to know that there was something there or was it like, oh man, I can't believe that I screwed myself up that bad. What did it do to you to hear that? Oh, well, I was like, so relieved, honestly, because yeah. I and I had also been like dating this guy who would like he was just kind of observe my behavior. And he was like, wasn't particularly interested in helping with anything or and he wasn't very sympathetic, but he just thought that I was like fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. And over t- and I've never really been like. Uh, you know, tumultuous relationship kind of person. And at that point I realized like, wait, no, I'm literally just drama just happens to me now. And I feel like I'm not even controlling it, but it's probably all my fault. And, and then I, and I just couldn't understand that. I was like, what is it? What is this person that I've turned into? So then when I found out that like, oh no, there's actual trauma that's just like making your brain go nuts whenever you try to make a rational decision. It's just like, you don't know how anymore. And that's not your fault. And so I was like, Oh, thank God. Right. So I can learn how to be a person again. And the doctor was like, yeah, of course. And I was like, okay, (laughs) sick. That's good. I'm not ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then what, so so this retraining, this learning to be a, a person again, um, was it through like, cognitive behavioral therapy or was it like did you have to work at it or was it like medicated right away or like you know sort of was it a slow process are you still do you still like feel like you're doing it I'm just interested in what you do to to you know once you know well I I honestly I didn't really I've never really liked therapy I've Mm -hmm. always gone when I'm like oh okay fine everyone's told me like you should just go to therapy But like, and so I wasn't like the kind of person that's like, I need to have this session every day and we need to talk every day and like talk through these issues because I feel like I'm pretty self-aware and also I did a lot of, I don't know, like that's a lot of what I studied just because I've always been kind of perceptive about what people are thinking. And so I would go to therapy and basically talk about like, here's what I think happened to make me like this. And the therapist would just be like, cool. I mean, if that's what you think, yeah. And then she'd tell me what she thought. And Mm -hmm. it was like, 
you know, it, and it was like a not really a s- slow process because once I fig- I found out like what causes, you know, like actual your brain, what your brain is doing that's making it feel this way. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me kind of to remember that when I'm like when I would feel myself kind of like freaking out or panicking or just being out of control, I would sit down and just be like, wait, okay, there's a reason for this. Mm-hmm. I need to take a second and think of what the reason is, and then I'll be good. And that was really easy. You were able to do that It would have been harder. Well, I was, I was because I was at home. Mm-hmm. I never, ever would have been able to do that if I had been, like, in L.A. with, you know, my friends and whatever. I got a job at, like, the surf shop where my friends worked in Florida, mm-hmm. and then I spent all my other time, like, at home with, like, my mm-hmm. dad and my brother. And both of them just don't, I mean, they weren't, you know, they're not going to get mad at me. They'd be like, they'll tell me when they'll be like, you're being a crazy bitch right now. And then I would be able to sit and be like, oh, okay, you're right. I am. And it's fine because it's my dad. And you trust them enough to take that at face value. Yeah. Yeah, Instead of like some asshole. If it was a boyfriend telling you that, you'd be like, fuck you. Exactly. And that would just, that's kind of what had been happening was like. He would tell me, my boyfriend would tell me, like, this is actually nuts. But he Mm -hmm. was kind of a dick. So I would always be like, wow, he's just being an extra dick and now he's making it worse. But when it's like my dad and my brother, you know, they have no ulterior motives. So (laughs) it kind of really, that's, it's kind of on them that I was able to get better. And Sam. Yeah. So being around people that you trusted was like a huge part of you being able to get over some of this PTSD and deal with it. Yeah. And even more so being away from people that I didn't trust, like just surrounding myself only with people that I knew weren't going to hurt me or take advantage of me or, you know, that was the only way I could do it. Yeah. People, places, things, right? Those are the three of the things that really like make a big difference in people's recovery from trauma or drug addiction or, you know, there's a lot of things, but they say people, places, and things are, are huge. So if you were in a place where you felt safe, surrounded by people you felt safe with, I, I could see how that could be a big, you know, a big factor in, in it. Yeah, totally. And it still is. Cause I, I mean, I'm still live like, I'm pretty isolated. Like, I mean, me and Sam, we don't, we don't, socialize a ton like we have to tour and whatever but for the most part I don't have to live the life that I was before when I was really involved with like I would go to fucking parties every day and I would go to shows every night and Mm -hmm. do all kinds of stuff that I didn't need to do and I was just surrounded by like the things that I've learned like I'm just not that kind of person I just can't I used to think it was because of something I needed to get over Mm -hmm. but now I realize like no my, my personality is just not doing that and that's okay. Yeah, I mean I definitely certainly when when I met you I thought of you as like an incredibly social person. So it's like interesting when people will have one vision of you and you're like actually <laughs> at heart I'm not. I was kind of Yeah, exactly. So with Sam, you said you you know Sam is one of the people that that's helped you too and that you trust being around. Um and it seems like before that you had like a number of relationships that weren't necessarily very healthy like how do you think you were able to break that pattern and and find like a healthy relationship for you was it because you were working on 
yourself with your family and people that you, you know, trusted or did you get really lucky? <laughs> you know, like what, what, what do you think changed? <laughs> well, I, I definitely got lucky, but a big thing was that me and Sam have been like, especially when I was in, when I was dating this, the guy in LA that I lived mm-hmm. with and like from the beginning of that relationship and I had like met Sam like right before that. So, and me and Sam just clicked as friends, you know, for a long time he would, cause I would tell Sam stuff about my life and he'd be like, wow, that sounds like traumatic. And I'd be like, yeah, it kind of was actually, you're right. Hmm. And then whenever I would talk about, you know, other problems I was having, like Sam was like one of the only people that actually put them into like the context of what he already knew about me. So if it was like, I'm having a fucking meltdown and I have no idea why over like my eyebrow waxing appointment or something like, I don't know, or some, something me and my boyfriend said and Sam would be like, wow, that's kind of fucked up for him to say that if he's like knowing what he, you know, about the things that you've gone through before. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd be like, wow, you're right. And so Sam was kind of a voice of reason that I needed because again, I didn't really have a lot of people that cared enough about me to like remind me that I'm not, you know, just some crazy bitch, you know? (laughs) And, uh, through through the end of like me living in LA and me just deciding I had to get out of there and move back to Florida, Sam was like, "Yeah, you're right, dude. This is a good idea." And everyone else, all my friends, were like, "No, we're gonna miss you." Like, right. and Sam was like, "Nah, dude, you need to get the hell away from there." <laughs> and he understood that. And he also like the tendencies that I had when we first were together. Like, I would still, I still had a lot of like panic attacks and like you know anxiety about stuff and Sam has a lot of anxiety too so he understands a lot of things but he Mm -hmm. also was maybe the first person ever that was like patient with me Mm -hmm. and I had like really needed someone to be patient with me because at that point I was ready to just stay away from other people until I could you know until something changed Mm -hmm. but Sam was like no dude you don't need to just hide from everybody just because you have some problems that you're like working through. Like you, people understand and people love you. Right. And, um, I definitely needed that. Yeah. I think like isolating is something that I do when I have trouble, you know, when, um, when I was having a really hard time getting off of heroin, I would just isolate myself cause I wouldn't want people to see me struggling, you know? And, um, yeah. the, the more I've realized like, well, people love me and they know I'm struggling anyway. So they'd rather see me and know that I'm like alive. You know what I mean? They'd rather me be around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and once I show my face, I actually do feel like a little better not being like, I'm a pathetic piece of shit and I'm going to crawl in a hole and nobody's going to hear from me. Like that didn't make me feel better either. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like you needed someone to remind you like that you deserve to feel better because I, that was, a, I don't know if you had that, but yeah. sometimes when I would be feeling just terrible, I was like, maybe this is just, I'm the dumbass that caused this. So maybe right. I should just fucking sit here and let everybody else be happy without me. Cause yeah, and you definitely need someone to like remind you like, no. Yeah. Well, I always felt like, well, I brought this on myself. I'm the idiot who got addicted to drugs, not them. It's not their fault. And I could imagine like a, being in a traumatic relationship, you could think like, well, I was the one who got into this relationship. I feel like an idiot for doing it or whatever. 
but it's, yeah exactly yeah it's not how other people see it they're like damn that's a shame <laughs> you know like you're great <laughs> <laughs> yeah at this point the conversation turned to body dysmorphia and anorexia I asked Kitty what you would say to people who don't understand how she could have body dysmorphia and be an internet sex symbol at the same time. This is where the conversation led. I don't know, sorry, I'm sort of mangling the question. I'll go back and make that sound better. <laughs> but I think you know what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, um, I mean, it is really hard to explain because body dysmorphia is really a weird thing that I can't... I've, like, tried to imagine myself as someone who didn't have it and mm -hmm. explain it, and it just sounds silly. It's, like, when you... It's just, like, a um, problem with your brain where you literally just can't see yourself the way that objectively you look and are. Like, mm -hmm. a like, a, like, a photograph of you can just look so different. And I don't know. And a lot of it goes away, at least for me, mm -hmm. with time... I can go back and see, because I still have, like... Oh, my God, that's so, amazing that you, know, you say it, that. It, I hear that, yeah. Yeah. You can, You never really... It doesn't go away, but, like, I can go back and look at pictures of myself, and I remember, because this, was, this would cause me so much, like, just trauma and just awful of maybe, like, somebody took a YouTube video of me or something and, like, posted it on YouTube of me at a show and then there's a bunch of people commenting on it and saying all this stuff and then it just like the words that other people say can like get twisted up in your mind so suddenly you start seeing those things too and mm -hmm. then with time I go back and like look and I'm like wait what the hell I looked amazing here <laughs> what right, was I thinking right. and and but so you like, didn't see it at the time at the time you only saw flaws and yeah, it's, like, only seeing... And it's not only that, but, like, it's not being able to get past them. Like, it just creeps in your mind all the time. Like, right now, it's my wrinkles. I can't... <laughs> I still have, like... I know I'm aware of it. Aware that, like, my, my brain is, like, showing me things that aren't real. Mm -hmm. But, like, I still just get these little things. And, like, right now, I have, like... To me, I have these wrinkles on the corners of my mouth, and they drive me crazy. Every time I go wash my hands, I see myself in the mirror, and I'm just like, oh, my God, those wrinkles. And, it, like, I can't not think about it. It's kind of crazy, but, like, it doesn't really bother me. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's kind of, like, the way that I would explain body dysmorphia to someone who doesn't understand. <laughs> yeah, I definitely... And it sounds silly. It does. It sound, sounds like it sounds I'm just being silly like from the vain. outside, right? Yeah, it's hard. Right, just vain. Yeah, sure. But it's but, not yeah. really like that, right? It's. I mean, I've no, because it's it's not like it's not like you you get care and like spend all your time trying to fix it. I mean, like at least once you're aware of it, you can kind of stop yourself from doing that. So it's not like I need to be a not wrinkled so I'm better than everyone else. It's literally just like, oh my god, I can't stand this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, it, it's something that I, of course, at the time as like a, a young man in like the early 2000s, like I, I'm just going to talk to anybody about it. But like, I always thought like, ah, oh, I hate being a fat kid and having to have my picture taken all the time. You know, it's so what I all I could think about was like, I'm so big. I'm so fat. Like, I'm so like, 
you know, like I can't get in shape. And, and like, meanwhile, like I was on tour 10 months a year, you know, there were times (laughs) when I was on tour vegan and like, I was like 120 pounds, you know what I mean? Just like skin and bones. And I'd see somebody below me in the pit because, you know, they take picture at an angle from below the stage and I'd be like oh god not that angle and like the label you know you know what I mean like you'd just be like oh no and the label would be like why won't you approve any pictures and I'm like I look fat in all of them and you know what I mean and I think the label thought yeah he's just being like vain or something but then I remember at one point um and we were lucky when we went to a major label it was like most of the people that were running our career were like you know, young women and they under, they didn't make me feel foolish for it, but they'd be like, you know, this isn't, you don't look fat. Like, I don't know how to describe this to you, but like, if anything, like, you know, put on some muscle or do something, but you're not fat. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And I, I just couldn't like, there's even parts of like some of our songs that have like reference to like, I just wish I was smaller. I just wish I, people wouldn't look at me. And if you look at like pictures of me from that time like I always look like I'm sad but really I just was like don't look at me I don't want to be looked at you know what I mean yep that's exactly how I felt too but at the same time I was like I have got to get looked at <laughs> right right and, and like now I look at those pictures and I'm like oh man I will never be that like beautiful again like I was skinny and, and <laughs> like tall and like and I couldn't stand to see myself you know what I mean it's funny like and I know I don't have it bad or anything, but I can understand anybody who says that they have body dysmorphia of any kind. I'm like, I get it. I yeah. can just get it because I've had like shades of it. So yeah, um, dude, it's just like that. Um, did you ever find yourself being like unhealthy in other ways because of it? Like not wanting to go out or not wanting to eat or like, were there any you know times that that affected you that way or not really? Well, I mean, I had like, I had an eating disorder before I made music. Like when mm-hmm. I, I, it was, it was getting bad. Like I weighed like eighty five, ninety pounds, and oh, I'm wow. like kind of tall for a girl. Yeah, so yeah I was yeah, really, totally. really small, and I was really. I had to get blood tests like a lot. I would get sick all the time, and so I just wasn't. I was. My health was very, very bad, and it got worse and worse as. I, when I first started getting attention, I was like, it was like a whole new side of it because I had already had so many like body image problems. And then all of a sudden there's all these people looking at me and commenting commenting on on it and like talking about me. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, and this is like the boss level of fucking (laughs) feeling terrible about myself is like, really? I'm on the the front page of the New York times and it's a picture of me. And I was always, always looking for, there's this magazine cover that is like the most beautiful photos anyone has ever taken of me and they look amazing and I remember when I went to Barnes and Noble to buy an issue of the Lady Gun magazine I don't think it exists anymore but I went to Barnes and Noble in Union Square to go get a copy of it and I just started crying in Barnes and Noble because I thought I looked so fat like I was like my arm it looks so fat and I was like and now I know that I think they photoshopped like my body to look a little less scary <laughs> because oh, it looked shit. so, I was so thin. Like I was so So it actually thin. probably was bigger have... than you were. And you're like, oh yeah. no. And it oh, fucked no. with me. <laughs> it was, it was bad. And I was, I mean, my eating disorder was a lot. And I'm lucky that I basically went to the doctor and when I was like 19 or 20 and she was like, 
you're definitely going to die if you don't stop this. Like, this is not, it's not even a question anymore. Like, you're literally going to die. Do you want mm-hmm. to die? And I was like, um, no. So right. I just kind of had, and, and it also, I'm very proud of myself for that because I didn't have a lot of, this was when I was in a, my bad, bad relationship. And mm-hmm. this was like in the most tumultuous times of the music thing. Mm-hmm. But and I was always on tour and I was always traveling and I had nobody like looking out for me really. But I was like, I don't want to die and I'm gonna die if I don't stop. So I figured it out. So <laughs> how did you figure that, that out? Did you just force yourself to eat or did you like start like talk talking to yourself in the mirror like you are pretty? Like you know, I don't mean to get. I I know it's so personal, <laughs> but like. Was there anything positive that people that maybe that are struggling with it can be like, well, that's how she did it, and maybe I can do it too. You know what I mean? Well, it was a lot of, yes, a lot of, like, looking in the mirror and being like, you you have to fix this. Like, this, you're good. This is good. This is fine. And, like, you know, I would I would have to do sort of, like, silly things a little bit. Like, I would... Mm-hmm. Wake up one day and be like, I look fat in all my clothes and and couldn't feel like comfortable in any of my clothes. Like I can't let anyone see me like this. And then I would go and buy a bunch of new clothes and it would be, you know, like you shouldn't just be buying clothes all the time. But like then I had clothes and I was like, okay, I can wear these. They're a little bigger and they look better on me. So I'm going to wear this and I'm going to look okay. And I would like do fun things to my hair that I always wanted to do and um, I got a dog too, <laughs> which was uh-huh. a big thing. Cause I was like, I can't die now because I have to take care of the dog. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there was just like a lot of, I had, I felt like I had to hold myself accountable for it mm-hmm. and also reward myself a lot because mm-hmm. rewarding yourself, like punishing yourself, like eating disorders are literally just punishing yourself constantly. Yeah. Like that's all you do is punish every single part of your day is like completely revolves around your weight and your body and like eating and stuff. And you just don't think about anything else. And it's just a cycle of punishing yourself. So I, once I like kind of realized that I was like, okay, so we're rewarding now that's, we're going to do the opposite. Yeah. And that's how you're going to be happy again. And, yeah. um, yeah, I get that. Yeah. So that I think is the best way to, I mean, obviously, going to therapy and actually getting professionals to help you is the best way. It's probably a lot goes a lot more smoothly, but but yeah, no that that, that like was... learning to reward yourself that is huge. Like I had to, you know, one of the things. So like I I you know did a pretty radical treatment to get off heroin, but when I came back, they were like, if you don't learn to reward yourself in a healthy way. You know, it's not going to work because right now your brain thinks the only positive reward you can get is an opiate, like is, is heroin or something else. You know, like that's literally your brain thinks that's the only way you know you did a good job is if you get that. So you have to learn to reward other ways. And like one of the things that I every day started having to do was like talking to myself in the mirror saying like, hi, I'm on your side and we're going to make it. You know what I mean? Like just like <laughs> and it's so corny. It made me feel so weird. But like I did it but every day. But it's real though. And it's real it and it works. It makes you seriously think about it. <laughs> yeah. Like looking in the mirror and talking to yourself is such a like stupid like cliche thing. 
But yeah. like when you actually do it, it feels good because you're are talking to yourself. Right. I remember the therapist asked me like, um, have you ever done that before? You know, asking like to see if I could start doing it. And I was like, only when I'm so fucked up that I'm literally in the bathroom looking in the mirror going like, <laughs> do not die. <laughs> Don't die. You're yeah. going to be okay. And like <laughs> the therapist is like, oh shit, it is not the same thing. But really what I'd love to get to is sort of where you're at now, which is almost because of the up and down nature of your career, like you've been able to kind of have a freedom um, to do different things and, you know, play in, in a band with your husband while also having like this crazy, like the pom-pom stuff and also doing your solo stuff and also kind of learning to do like pop under a different name. And, you know, it's just to me, it's sort of like if you had become this huge rapper, I don't know if you would have had the freedom to do all these things in your career. And so it's just sort of interesting for me to find out where you're at now and how you feel about music now and sort of like what life is like for you now. I mean, this is by far, I was just thinking about it because like to, at Christmas time every year, I always just start like assessing my year. And like, I think that after all of this time, like that's exactly right. Like if I had, if I had been in all these contracts and like taken all these things and, you know, done what everybody wanted me to do instead of being ornery. I would probably still be doing that. And, like, it probably, you know, maybe it would have turned out great and I would, you know, have a five years of making songs that people listen to on the radio or whatever and until mm-hmm. they get bored of me. And But instead, like, I, I didn't have that and I was constantly just trying to, like, find my place and learn new things and make different stuff and get involved in different things because I kind of had to. Mm-hmm. I was like, this isn't going to work. Okay, I guess we'll try this. And I don't have any money this month, so I guess I'm going to pretend that I know how to be a consultant and, like, get a job for a company. And, you know, like, it just all the different things that I just made myself do because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, mm-hmm. all of them have, like, finally started to become, like, a routine and, like, a life. Like, making songs for games mm-hmm. It's like, what I've spent most of my year doing. And I literally had no... Like, I always... Since I started making music, I was like, wow, it'd be really fun to do video games because I love them. And so I just kind of started, like, talking to people and, like, making friends and, like, you know, following people on Twitter and whatever. And all of the hustling and, like, doing stuff for free and all of those things. Now I finally feel like I have a career that's Mm -hmm. steady. And also Sam's band, too. Like, having Sam's band be... Something that we know is, like, we know that's going good. That's Mm -hmm. always fine. So, like, we can experiment with other stuff. We don't have to, like, nail ourselves into, you know, Kitty the brand or whatever because, like... (laughs) Kitty world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, everything is, like, fluid. What do you think allowed you to look at this, like, in such a healthy way now and have such a healthy... Like life, is it like finding balance between like personal life and music or, you know, having like a steady home life with, you know, your family and everything around you? Or is it just kind of like getting older and not putting as much stock in what other people tell you about yourself? Like, what do you think has sort of been the key to getting to this place? Because it seems to me that you're in a really good place and I think you're making some of the best music of your career. And like, I'm just, yeah, I'm really excited for you, Kitty. No, yeah, I, um, okay, so you know how 
like Amanda Bynes and like Britney Spears all have their like wild ass moments where they like shave their head and go <laughs> off and then you never hear about them for a while and then suddenly they're like totally fine. Like they come <laughs> back and do an interview and they're like, wow, I was a mess. Good thing I'm here now. Like I kind of feel like that. I feel like it went that way. Like you reach like a point of absolute like horrendous just life is just terrible. Mm-hmm. You're rock bottom, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm describing mm-hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a little bit different, I feel like, when other people are watching because yeah. a lot of times I imagine and I know a lot of people who have hit rock bottom and they have, you know, their family helps them out of it and, you know, they get better and everything. But it's like at the end of the day, they can kind of everyone they haven't seen for a while might not even know but like for me it's like everyone knows (laughs) everybody knows and now you know with my like stupid ex-boyfriend the whole thing going on now like everybody knows about that and they're like oh that's why kitty was so fucked up right and so i don't know it's like people knowing a lot of things about me and that was like a big reason why i felt bad in the first place was because I felt like, oh, I have this problem. I'm never going to escape it because someone's going to remember it, bring it up to me at a show or something. Mm-hmm. And now, and now, I don't know, a lot it was of like a secret the pressure. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the pressure of always, of you know, not being successful, but still being in front of a lot of people who are paying attention. But like, I still have to fight for like my career and everything. And the career stuff has sort of been like, leveling itself out and then you know the the things that people thought about me that were bad are sort of it's been enough time that they're going away so people are kind of like a little bit more respectful to me mm-hmm. and also yeah I, I I still don't like I don't uh put a lot of stock into appearances and like mm-hmm networking and shit like that anymore <laughs> right. which is was a very big part of why I think I fell apart a little think I fell apart a little listening back to Kitty's story I found myself searching for the silver bullet solution that it contained but after being unable to find one single solution I realized that Kitty's story is about balance and that Kitty had made a lot of little changes to become healthy as an artist and as a person. Some of these changes are surrounding herself with people who love her and that she trusts, seeking therapy for the problems that she was facing, and being real with herself about what she actually wanted to achieve rather than chasing other people's goals. That's it for this episode of Dark Blue. Please like and subscribe this podcast, and write me at Dark Blue Podcast on Twitter. Or on Facebook. Tell me what you want to hear about. I'm Jeff Rickley. Take care. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris connects people like you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Check out OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter to stay in the loop about new podcasts and events.